So I'm, I'm Patrick. Um, good to be here with you. I'm one of the pastors here. I've actually been around for quite a while. Uh, but some of you are new since then. I just came off of a three-month sabbatical. So just at the outset, I want to say thank you uh, for all your prayers for myself and my family during this time of rest and renewal. I want to thank the elders and so many of you who, who stepped up to lead and serve uh, in our absence. It's been a blessing just to watch the church from afar grow and thrive while I was away. I'm looking forward to catching up, but as you can probably tell, I feel like I just stepped out of a cave that I was in for three months into a room full of people. So it's going to take a little time to catch up with everyone, to meet all the new people, but super excited. Um, so as you can imagine, one of the first questions that I've been asked a lot during this re-entry process as of Monday till now is, how was it? How was your time? That's the question I've gotten repeatedly, and it's a great question, but it's not really the easiest question to answer. These months were really good. They were relaxing for the most part. They were challenging. I got to spend a ton of time with my family, which was awesome. A ton of time in prayer and solitude and reading. But to try and quantify what I learned or what God was doing and he is doing, that's going to take some time. But I am excited to do that with you over the coming weeks and to share how God has been shaping and growing me as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor. So today, rather than just jumping right back into 1 Timothy, I wanted to take this week, this morning, to talk a little bit about one element of my sabbatical uh, that was very impactful. It's something that really goes against uh, the grain in our culture. And if you look at it on face value, it kind of seems like maybe it's a a waste of time, it's unproductive, but I hope to make a case this morning that is, it is an essential part of the Christian life. And what I'm talking about is silence and solitude. I love those words. And I know just the idea of those things causes some of you to cringe just a little bit. And I use both of these words because you can have silence without solitude, and you can have solitude full of noise and chaos and busyness. But what I'm talking about is a type of solitude where we remove the distractions and the noise and we spend time quietly before the Lord. It's not complicated. It is very simple. But it's the idea of this mystical space in our life where the fire hydrant of information and entertainment is turned off for a brief moment. No phone. Let's say that again. No phone. No email. No Netflix. No background music. And I know that that's frightening for some, while others are like, yes, please, bring it on. But wherever you land on the spectrum, I can tell you from experience that the discipline of solitude or undistracted time before the Lord is of tremendous value. So 
before we dive into scripture and actually get to the point, uh, let me just tell you briefly about the journey that got me to this place. As most of you know, I have a cabin behind my house, and that cabin has now become the official church office. So Carrie and John both spend most days in the cabin working. So as you can imagine, when I'm taking three months off from working, and there's two full-time pastors in my backyard pretty much every day, that's weird. It's kind of hard. I would come into the cabin to sit at my desk, and I'd be like kind of a conversation killer. Like they'd see me, and they'd just stop, like, how are you? Am I interrupting you? No, not at all, right? (laughs) But I am. My presence means you can't talk. So that was a little weird, so I decided I needed to find another place to sit and ponder my existence. And so it just happened that I had a 16-foot by 10-foot slab in the back of our property that I wasn't using anymore, and so I thought, this is the perfect spot for a solo shed. Some of you have ideas like that, like, that'd be cool, but as most of you know, I love a good project, and the time between when I have an idea about a project and the actual doing of that project is typically very, very short. So within the week, I had the whole thing framed and roofed, and it was rolling very quickly. And within a couple weeks after that, I was sitting in this new space alone. It was amazing. So amazing. No offense, I love John and Carrie, but I love silence as well. And here's the crazy thought that I had. When I was almost done kind of building this thing, which really it was just like, hey, quiet space. But I thought, what would it look like if this were to be like a, a sacred space of sorts? A little 16 by 10 foot piece of earth where no cell phone or Wi-Fi ever went, in, went inside. A place where myself and where others could sit undistracted, untainted by the endless streams of information. And really, it was just an idea. And really, it became an eye-opening experience the first time I actually walked in there and set my cell phone on the ground outside. It wasn't eye-opening because I audibly heard the voice of God because I set my phone down. That would have been super cool. I didn't have any grand epiphanies. It was really quite the opposite. I sat and I read the word and I prayed and I kept reaching for my phone. I kept thinking about things I needed to look up or people I needed to text or reminders. Oh, I need to... The number of times was staggering. It was this vivid picture of how perpetually distracted I was, even subconsciously. And this happened for the first week that I sat there. I didn't sit in there for a whole week, but like every day for a week, just in case you, you know, I didn't, I didn't go that hard yet. But in many ways, I, I, like sequestering myself inside of this little box had created an inconvenience for myself. It created a mild annoyance, but the more that I sat in this space, unplugged from all of the brain clutter, the clearer my thoughts became, the clearer the word became the more clearly I saw myself both good and bad in light of the glory of God. 
I was slowly learning the practice of stillness and attentiveness, of the necessity of solitude and silence before God. And really, it led me down this path of looking into the Word to see if I might be the brave pioneer who just discovered this thing called solitude. It's possible. Like, maybe other people should know, but let me see. This could be in Scripture. Maybe it's been staring at me all along and I missed it or possibly ignored it. And as I started studying, I was continually drawn to two verses, and they're both incredibly simple verses that most of you are going to know, but really when you sit with these verses in silence and solitude for a long time, they grow. They are challenging, they are powerful and rich. They, they challenge kind of the pace and the purpose of our lives. And so the first verse is Luke chapter 5. At this point in Luke, Jesus has already been baptized by John, tempted in the desert by Satan. His ministry, earthly ministry, is in full swing. He's teaching with power and authority. He's healing and casting out demons. People are flocking to Jesus to hear his words, to see his miracles, to be healed. That's what we read in Luke chapter 5, verse 15. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, right? Multinational. And great crowds gathered to him to be healed of their infirmities. And then verse 16 says, But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Great crowds were gathering to him to be healed from all over, but Jesus would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Now, obviously, not a big surprise that Jesus prayed, okay? We expect that. We expect him to seek out solitude and silence. But what stands out to me is the priority Jesus put on solitude, as well as the ramifications of that priority. Because if we read between the lines, great crowds gathered to hear Jesus and to be healed by Jesus, but Jesus withdrew, Jesus left, Jesus saw people coming, and he turned around and went the other way. Jesus went off to desolate places to commune with the Father. So what this means is that there were people who didn't hear Jesus teach. There were people who were not healed by Jesus because Jesus valued communion with the Father. This time of solitude and prayer was a greater priority to Jesus than performing miracles. Jesus wasn't taking a, a break from ministry when he went to desolate places. He was engaging in a whole other level of ministry. This isn't Jesus being selfish, but rather Jesus being keenly aware of what is necessary to fulfill the ministry to which he was called. Jesus intentionally pulls away from people for three reasons. To commune with the Father, to align his will with the Father's, and to be ministered to 
by the Father. Jesus' unity with the Father wasn't a supporting role in his ministry. We have to realize that his, his unity wasn't a supporting role. Jesus' unity with the Father was the catalyst and the power. It was the shared, unified, triune love of the Father that drove everything Jesus had come to accomplish. He hadn't simply come to heal people of their temporal ailments. He didn't just come to sharpen their theology. He'd come to lay his life down for them, to open a way for us to have this same unity with the Father. So he withdraws from people, he goes and he prays, and here's what he prays in John 17. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. And the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So he withdraws from people to desolate places to pray for people. It was this simple picture of Jesus disconnecting from the important tasks of his life and his ministry to seek solitude with the Father that is stuck with me. How often have I become too busy with important ministerial tasks to commune with the Father? How often have I prioritized doing tasks for God over being with God? And I know it's not just me. The number of times I've heard people say they don't have any time for prayer or solitude is staggering. We live in an overly busied and distracted culture, and honestly, the idea of science, science, science scares us, but silence scares us more, because it's easy to talk about Jesus, to tell people about him and what he did, but if he is the perfect model of faithfulness, how can we preach his words and not follow the very example of health and renewal that he gave us? That's what we read in 1 John 2, verses 5 and 6. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, that is Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's not rocket science. If we say we love Jesus, if we abide in Jesus, we should look at his life and try and follow him. He even said something about that, right? He said, like, follow me, Jesus. It's not a call to perfection, but a call to humble imitation. Solitude and prayer were not another religious task to be done for Jesus. They were a source of life and power. It was the communion with the Father that empowered Jesus to fulfill the ministry he came for. And so, I guess the question is, why do we struggle with solitude and prayer? Why is it so hard to stop and be with the Father? And I think one of the reasons is that we have a, an unhealthy estimation of our own importance or a self-infatuation. We think we are so important to our ministry, our jobs, our family, our responsibilities, that if we are not perpetually engaged in these things, they're going to fall apart. 
right? You are holding this whole thing together. And that may not be entirely wrong. Some things may fall apart. Some things may not get done. For Jesus, it meant some people didn't get healed. But Jesus knew that everything, literally every human being, would suffer if he did not stay in communion with the Father. So, what I hope you see this morning, what has become increasingly clear to me over the last few months, is that Jesus came first and foremost to draw us into a relationship with the Father. He didn't come so that we do a bunch of Christian stuff, a bunch of Christian tasks. He didn't come so that we'd have a successful ministry or a successful life. Sorry. He came for hearts. He came so that we might be perfectly united with him. Once again, this is what Jesus prayed for us in John 17 when he removed himself. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The call on our lives is to follow Jesus and point the world to the love of the Father through the Son. So we need not only look to Jesus, but we have to look at him. We need to look at the way he lived and the way in which he found rest and peace and power for the unimaginable ministry that was before him. We need to seek the silence and solitude that is necessary for hearing from the Lord. And I'll be honest, it is hard. Solitude is hard. It challenges the very core of our prideful flesh. And that flesh will revolt against you when you turn off all of the distractions and you sit with your God. Your flesh will not like it. Solitude is a physical representation of the reality that we are neither the point nor the power for this life. It's a proclamation that what is of of utmost importance is not everything out there. It's not the call on your life or your job, but it is your relationship with the God who called you. When you strip away all the distractions, the phones and computers and spreadsheets and calendars and the tasks to be done, when you sit alone in silence with only God and your thoughts and prayers, you begin to see God working slowly and steadily through the silence. All the things that make you significant in the eyes of people, whatever it is about which you might boast or take confidence in, they lose their luster in the face of our Creator God. In the stillness before God, we quickly learn that there is only one thing in which we can boast And it's not our righteousness. It's not our accomplishments. It's Christ alone. In solitude, there is no one to influence. There's no one to lead. There is simply space and time to be influenced and to be led as the overestimation of our necessity is broken down. 
And there is peace and there is power and there is hope as we remember again our only hope in life and death is Jesus. We are not the point and we are not the power, yet our loving Father has called us first and foremost into a relationship. And he has sent us out as heralds of salvation, not through our own righteousness, but through the righteousness, righteousness of the one perfect human being to ever live, the God who laid his life down for the salvation of all who would believe, the God who found hope and power in communion with his Father, the God who died to invite us into the presence of the Father. So one reason we struggle with solitude is because it exposes our inadequacy, our smallness, our need for something outside of ourselves. But it also exposes our insecurity. The, rea the reality is that a lot of people busy their lives intentionally to avoid stillness, to avoid silence, because they're afraid to face themselves. Being alone with our thoughts, alone with our God is terrifying, especially when we're constantly trying to bolster our identity apart from Christ. Right? It makes us feel very vulnerable, undone, exposed. Silence is one thing, but to intentionally put yourself into a position of introspective prayer, coming face-to-face -face with your struggles and your doubts and your fears and your insecurities, looking intently at who you are, at what drives your heart. And like the psalmist saying, search me, God. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. I know that whenever we enter into intentional prayer, we struggle with this question of what if God doesn't answer? Like that's, that's the low-level question. The really scary question is, what if he does? Right? That's the real scary question. I don't want to go there because he may answer. He may expose some darkness in your heart. He may call you to a greater level of faithfulness. This is the blessing and the struggle of solitude and prayer. We come face-to-face -face with both ourself and our God. But the promise is that God is for us, that he loves us, that he meets us in this space so that we might find true joy and hope and life, even if the winnowing of the flesh is painful at times. Jesus came to defeat sin and death and to free us from the bondage of the flesh so that we might be in relationship with the Father. And he is calling us to withdraw with him to desolate places. And my prayer is that we would listen and we would follow. So that was the first verse. The second one that stood out, which obviously we will talk more briefly about, it points to this necessity of stillness and places us in right orientation with God. It makes vividly clear who the main character in our story of redemption is. And surprise, it's not us. The verse is Psalm 46 verse 10 be still and know that i am god 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. A lot here. We won't be here too long, but just to be clear, this verse has two commands and two proclamations. It starts with the commands, the imperatives. God says, be still. And he says, no. Be still and no. Now, so what he doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey guys, um, when you have some free time, when you have a free moment, why don't you decide what you think about me? Maybe read some verses if you're not too busy and figure out which verses resonate with you and which aspects of, of my character that you would like for your God. Sounds ridiculous. But we see it all the time. People thinking they can decide for themselves who God is. People thinking they can accept certain aspects of God's word and his character and reject others. Surprise, you just made yourself God. That's all that happens. And here we have the creator God saying, hey everybody, uh, I made everything. That's me. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know you infinitely better than you know yourself. I know your needs more fully than you could ever imagine. Now, uh, be still and know that I am God. And so, if I can twist the words around a little bit, which I can because I've got the microphone, just to make it a little more pointed to our prime struggle of our human existence, here's what I hear God saying, saying, be still, remove all of the busyness and the distractions, and know that you're not God, that you're not in control, that you are not the sovereign creator of any life, definitely not all life. I am. And that is the point of solitude and prayer, of entering into this God-ordained and God-commanded stillness. It is creating space to come face-to-face -face with our God, it is a place to be still and to know God. And there's nothing more comforting and joy-evoking than to see the glory and the power of God and to know that you are loved by Him. All the cares and anxieties, worries and fears melt away in the presence of our loving God. So, we got two commandments, and then we got two proclamations. God says, be still and know that I am God. And then he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Once again, it's important to note that he's not requesting something of us, right? He's not asking anything. He says, be still know who I am, I will be exalted. I will be exalted. And here's the beautiful thing. Through the ministry of Jesus, we have been invited into the exaltation. 
We've been set free from the bondage of our sinful flesh and invited into a relationship with God that we might worship Him in spirit and in truth. But don't miss the, the emphasis. God is not pleading with us to exalt Him. He's not hoping that we might worship Him. He says, I will be exalted. I will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. It's simply a question of time. God is not pining for our attention or our belief or our worship. In his unmatched glory and love, he has invited us into exaltation. He has invited us to worship him. He has invited us into his presence through Jesus Christ. All the things that we futilely try and milk from this life for love and acceptance and identity and purpose, God says, I've come to bring life and bring it abundantly. Those things will only be found in me. Give up your feeble attempts to play the God of your own lives and enter my loving presence. Stop grasping for identity apart from me and find your true self in my presence. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in you. Let's pray together. Father God, this is our prayer that we would experience your nearness, that we would experience your glory and power. God, that we would know the joy of fellowship with you. God, we just thank you for Jesus. God, that you made a way where there was no way that we might be in your presence, God. Let us not take this for granted. Let us not take such a great salvation lightly. God, let us enter into your presence, into the stillness and solitude that you might be glorified through our lives. In your name we pray.